Well, good morning, everybody. As you can see, um, I'm not Phil, unless uh, unless he got yeah, unless he got a whole lot shorter, hairier, and uglier. Yeah, I'm not Phil. Um, oh, Phil was on vacation this week, and he just asked me to fill uh, the pulpit here or the stand here, and uh, he had a great time as his family, and um, I had a great time being in the Word. Um, invite you to open up to the book of Acts, and we're going to get started right away. I have way too many notes, and it's going to be a miracle of the Lord if we get through all these. Open up to the book of Acts. I hope you notice in our scripture reading, really we have this example of what it is to be a servant. Here you have Jesus taking... <laughs> the very example of what the lowest servant of a household would do, washing uh, his guests' feet. And really, the book of Acts is all about being a servant. It's really about God fulfilling his promise, being faithful to build his church, and the gates of Hades would not prevail upon it. And how would he do that? Well, look in Acts chapter 1 as I turn there myself. You can see in verses 1 through 11, the first aspect of service in that God commissions his people to serve. He commissions his disciples to serve. Look in Acts 1.8. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There is the commission, the command, go out, serve, spread the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. Secondly, we see in the book of Acts, God equips his disciples to serve. We see this in Acts chapter 1, verses 12, all the way to Acts chapter 2, verse 13. First of all, God replaces Judas Iscariot. He equips the apostles to go out and actually carry out what he commands them to do. And so Judas went out and hung himself, now God is bringing in a replacement in Matthias. Secondly, we see in the part of there of, uh, of this aspect of God equipping his people to serve, that God equips his people to serve by sending the Holy Spirit to indwell them. How would Peter, a man that so easily denied Jesus some 40 days earlier, be able to be this bold preacher that we've come to notice so far in the book of Acts. Well, it's only through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. God does not call his people to do something without equipping them to carry it out. And three, this third aspect of service that I see here in the book of Acts that we've seen so far is God working through his disciples to serve. We see this from Acts 2.14 to the end of the book. Kind of in two parts. Primarily God working through his apostles to spread the news of the gospel to the Jewish people. Primarily Peter as the head. And later on in the book of Acts, we see that God primarily reached the Gentiles through the apostle Paul. This brings us really for our topic today, in case you haven't noticed it already. It's 
How did we faithfully serve the Lord? What is a faithful servant? Now, to achieve this, I want to dive into the text of Genesis chapter 24. Acts was just a jumping off point to get back to Genesis. Sorry, Ken Ham, I stole from you. We were going to look at seven key characteristics of what a faithful servant is. But ultimately, however, it's not about the man in Genesis chapter 24. The ultimate faithful servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our ultimate example of what a servant is to be and who we are to be. Before we begin Genesis 24, let's pray. Father... You know me. You know us, Lord. You search down to the deepest recesses of our hearts. All of me, all of us, Lord, are laid bare before you. Our thoughts, motives, intentions, desires, dreams, aspirations, you see clearly. Father, we ask you, And we beg of you this morning, Lord, we're in daily need of your grace and mercy. Be merciful to us this morning, Lord. We carry a lot of baggage with us throughout our days, throughout our weeks, and even this morning. Stuff at home is on our mind, stuff from work. It's so easy to get distracted from really hearing your voice through your word. Father, be merciful. Cause us to concentrate on you. Let us see that you are our greatest good. May we enjoy you. Father, um, I even pray that uh, as we go through Genesis 24, that I would not do so in a hypocritical way. Lord, it feels like I've been in a boxing match with you. Um, I fell on every single one of these aspects of being a a servant every day. I think we all do, Lord. May you give us the grace to just confess who we are and what we are to you and to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith and rest in him. May our confidence in our Lord Jesus grow through this, and out of that, our love. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Seven key characteristics of what it is to be a faithful servant. The first one I can see out of this text is this. A faithful servant obeys their master's commands. Pretty simple, obedience. Let's just start there. Now, I'm not going to be able to read through all of Genesis 24. You seen this thing? It's, it's huge. 67 verses. I wish I could, but I, I just want to kind of explain the text and draw out some points. Abraham's getting well advanced in years. He was old when he had Isaac. And now by this time, Isaac's about 40 years old. 
Abraham's wife, Isaac's mother, Sarah, is dead. And it's at this point, Abraham is going to go, and he desires to get a wife for his son. However, he has a problem. He's not to leave the promised land of Canaan. How is he going to get a faithful wife for his son? So he calls together, he calls to him his chief servant, the man that was in control of over all of his household. And he basically charges the man, hey, go out, find a wife for my son. Not here locally, where there's all kinds of um, loose living women that just kind of say it how it is, but back to my homeland. And the servant totally buys into this. He's invested already. He's thinking through things already, and he has a question. Well, okay, yeah, absolutely, but what if she won't come back with me? What do I do then? Do I go and come back and take Isaac to her, then bring them both back? Abraham, thinking and probably praying this out, says, no. You're free from your oath if that happens and she won't come. Hmm. So the man, he had to have some degree of authority over Abraham's household. Gathers all the supplies he needs, camels, um, great riches for a dowry price. And he leaves, he obeys, and goes all the way to the city of Nahor. It's just an interesting thing, and there was just this oath. There was this handshake. It wasn't really a handshake, though. In those ancient days, the guy had to put his hand under Abraham's thigh. I'm glad we've moved past that to the (laughs) handshake or the pinky swear. The hand under the thigh, I'm good on that. But uh, he obeys. This man obeys. And I want to tell you about this. This had to be a difficult command to obey. It wasn't like Phil on a vacation. This was an extremely difficult command to obey. First of all, travel was often dangerous in those days. Robbers could at any point jump upon you and beat you down and take what you have. You remember the aspect where Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, did you? Where a man traveling gets beaten, left half dead. You notice that the audience when Jesus told that parable didn't say, whoa, 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 that's ridiculous, that never happens. It happened all the time. In fact, they didn't even have a police force. And I'm pretty sure somebody's going to get robbed today in California, and we do have a police force. Travel was very dangerous. And yet this man, in obedience to his master, says, yeah, I'll go. And he obeys. Secondly, in obeying this, the servant would leave behind many of the comforts of home. In obeying, in following through with this obedience, he would have to leave behind possibly his wife and kids. Just because he's a slave or a servant doesn't mean he didn't have that. Home-cooked meals, 
just all of the things that we enjoy but we can't take with us on the trip? This guy couldn't have it. I mean, I'm sure you're like me. If you go on a long vacation, well, if you're me, those, those are seldom. About halfway through, you start missing some of the aspects of home. You want to get back. Well, the servant would have to leave those behind to obey his master, Abraham. Here's an interesting one as I was thinking and praying about this. This duty of obeying his master is pretty awkward. Actually, it's extremely awkward. The more I think about it. How do you do this? How do you approach that subject? See a young woman. Hey, I don't know what you're doing for the rest of your life. I got a master. He has a son. You want to travel back over hundreds of miles with me? Had to be awkward. I'm sure he thought about that a lot along the way. And last, I, it's a difficult, difficult obedience because quite possibly this guy put aside the aspect of he had this amazing opportunity for revenge. I'll step away from that mic. He puts aside an opportunity for revenge. Back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 2, before Abraham even had kids, it names his chief servant. It's Eliezer of Damascus. And if Abraham died and did not have any kids, this slave, this servant, Eliezer, would have inherited all that Abraham had. Riches beyond belief. He would have been a free man. Well, first came Ishmael, but he gets kicked out. Then comes Isaac. With Isaac, the heir of the promise, Eliezer knows he'll never be a free man. He'll never be rich. And he had this opportunity to prevent for revenge. Could have went out there and picked the ugliest woman he ever saw. <laughs> Could have went into the town and said, Tell me, which of your young ladies likes to nag the most? <laughs> no, he wants to do the best job for his master. And he leaves off any opportunity for revenge. Ultimately, though, not so much about this servant. I want to look at the ultimate servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. Was there not danger in obeying his Father's will? The ruling authorities hated him. They often plotted together on how they would put him to death. Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, and after seeing that great miracle, they all get together. How can we crush this guy out? We can't have the Romans coming down on us. We've got to put this Jesus of Nazareth to death.
You see that in John 11, 45 through 53. Or what about this? It being dangerous. People of his own hometown wanted to kill him. Throw him off a cliff. Just because Jesus spoke the truth in love, because he claimed to be who he was, the Messiah, and because he exposed their sin of their hatred for the Gentiles. Or how about this? It was dangerous because even the governmental leaders desired to kill Jesus. We read of Herod the Great when Jesus was a young boy, some two or three years of age. And Herod, in an act of defiance of God, goes and kills all the young boys of Bethlehem in the surrounding towns. The Israelites tried to stone him. We see that in John 8, verse 59, after Jesus makes the proclamation, before Abraham was, I am. Was there not even danger going toe-to-toe with Satan himself when the Spirit of God directed Jesus to the wilderness? Everything. You know, Jesus obeying the Father was dangerous. Yet he obeyed. And really, that's the reason why we're here today. Jesus doesn't obey. We have no point in being here. We would be idiots. Despite the danger, he obeyed. Well, how about this? Jesus left behind the comforts of heaven to obey his Father's will. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it says that he made himself nothing. Kenosis. In some translations, he emptied himself. Thought about this and researched it. What does it mean when Jesus emptied himself? The biggest point I could get is he's emptying himself of his glory. The glory that he has in heaven is not on full display in his incarnation. Therefore, in John chapter 17, verse 5, when Jesus is praying to his Father, he says, Father, glorify your Son with the glory that I had before the world existed. Bring it back. I'm almost done here. Restore that. How about he left behind the continual praise of the heavenly beings, the angels of heaven, that come down here to be scorned and ridiculed. Literally in John 15, verse 25, it says that Jesus was hated by men without a cause. They go from absolute praise to hatred without a cause. That's not a comfortable thing. He also left behind the prerogatives of his deity. Do we not read in scripture that There were times when the omniscient, all-knowing Jesus did not know some things in his humanity. Hey, when's the second coming? When are you coming back? When's the end of the world? I don't know. Only the Father knows. 
the omnipotent Jesus, the all-powerful Jesus, left aside the prerogative of his deity to become tired, thirsty, hungry. The one who needs nothing all of a sudden is in need. He left behind great comforts and taken on humanity to becoming the God-man, to serve his Father and to serve us. Wasn't there great awkwardness also in Jesus obeying his Father? He was associated with people who were despised in that society, absolutely hated. Oh, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Luke 15, 1 through 2. He was rejected. Even his own brothers, his own family rejected him. We see that in Mark 6, and also in John 7, 5. What about his own countrymen? The Israelites rejected him. Listen to the words of the Old Testament speaking about Jesus. Isaiah 50, verse 6. Speaking of Jesus, it says, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Psalm 22, verse 6, also speaking of Jesus, says this, He was scorned by mankind, despised by the people. Here's the one who it is insane to reject him. And yet, masses of people rejected him as the Messiah. That's awkward. We've got through a lot in life to avoid rejection. Here Jesus is willingly taking it on because he loves his Father and he wants to obey. His death on the cross was also awkward. Could be the most awkward thing of it all. It was an ignoble death, a despised death. Literally, the scripture read, Christ became a curse for us when he hung on the cross. It was a cursed death. He bore the curse of the law. Because it says in the Old Testament, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Paul picks up on that in Galatians 3.13. He became a curse in his death. Because he loved his father and desired to obey him. And here's another thing. Think about his death and think about the awkwardness of this. They stripped him down naked and mocked him and killed him. His shame was out there. People were casting lots. The soldiers were casting lots for his clothes. His people mocked him. Yet it was the Father's will. And he does it. I 
lastly, and I love this, I mean, think about it. Jesus put aside these opportunities to re for revenge in obeying his father. Think about his arrest. Peter draws out the sword, swinging it around, cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus, in a paraphrase, just says, what are you doing, Peter? Put that away. You're stupid. Don't you know I could call down 12 legions of angels? He could, yet he doesn't. Two angels destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah as well as the cities of the plain, too, let alone what 12 angels ticked off and vengeful could do. And yet Jesus takes no opportunity there for immediate revenge. What about his crucifixion? Listen to the words of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His dying breaths, he lays aside immediate revenge on those who scorned and hated him. In fact, it says in 1 Peter 2.23, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continually entrusted himself to him, to the Father who judges justly. Jesus is our ultimate example. If anybody... If obedience was based on circumstances, Jesus would have more of an excuse than all of us combined to not obey. Yet he does. It has to be said here while we're on the subject. We all need to stop and think of this. How have we obeyed this week? It's easy for me to look in the past and say, oh yeah, five years ago I was doing this and this and this and this. But how have I done lately? Have I, like the servant and like Jesus, not shrunk back from danger? Despite the awkwardness of sometimes sharing the gospel, shared it out of love and boldly. Put myself in a sense last and not seeking revenge when other people do me wrong, but look at it as an opportunity to be like Jesus and show grace, mercy, love, patience, forgiveness. We all need to think through these things. This brings me to my second point. I need to um, get moving. If we're going to get through all seven. A faithful servant's greatest desire is the success of their master's will. We see this in verses 12 through 14. A Faithful servant's greatest desire is the success 
of their master's will. So I'll pick back up in the story. The servant has traveled a long ways on a camel. His back is... Oh. It might be fun to ride at one of these amusement parks, but I'm sure the camel, a long ride through the desert is not fun. He's been out for a while. But he has this job to do. He gets to the place. And he says this in verse 12. Oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. Why? And show steadfast love to my master Abraham. He goes through in the rest of this prayer and basically just lays it all out. Lord, this is a hard thing to do. How in the world am I going to do this unless you, Lord, guide me? I'm here at the well, and it's about that time of day when women are going to come out and get water. I need you to guide me to the right woman, Lord. So I'm going to ask one for a drink of water. And Lord, it's going to be the woman who says, okay, yeah, have a drink, but let me also get a whole bunch of water for your camels also. Lord, would you make that happen so I'll know who the right woman is? It's kind of a bold request. Stop and think about it. Common hospitality would be like, okay, I'll get you a drink of water. Anybody would do that in that culture in that day. No biggie. But as we know, camels can drink a whole lot of water. How many trips to the well to pull up the rope and get the bucket and water and back and forth? And here this man has other servants with him. Common hospitality stops well before, hey, uh, yeah, sure, let me get you some water for your camels. Most people would just say, you have hands and feet. Why don't you and your servants get your own water for your own camels? I got things to do also. But the first thing this guy does is he prays for success. He's praying to God So he definitely believes in this God, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, even though he calls him God of my master, Abraham. And we'll get into what that means in a later point. But his desire of success wasn't like, Lord, give me success because I'm hot and tired, my back hurts, I've been out here too long, and I want to go home. I think that would have been me in my prayer if I was there. He says, no, Lord, grant success for my master's sake. Show him love. Show him steadfast love. His greatest desire was Abraham's will being accomplished. 
accomplished. I want you to know, as we look at this, that's Jesus' greatest desire as the ultimate servant. His Father's will being done. Peek into the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night of Jesus' arrest. It's going to be tried all night long. The next afternoon, it's going to be on a cross, dying. He's in this garden, and he knows what's coming. He knows what's ahead. And we see the anguish of his soul. He literally says, my soul is sorrowful unto death. It's like my inner being, God, is being ripped apart under great stress. In Luke's gospel, it said, he sweat drops of blood because he knew the next day God the Father would look upon him and he would take the sin of believers place it upon Jesus. And the sinless Son of God would be the sin bearer. He would be made sin, him who knew no sin. He knew he would be forsaken by God, his Father, during that time. And he would be treated, be treated like everything the Father hates. Take your greatest hate you've been the most mad. Multiply that by a trillion. It's still nothing compared to what Jesus endured. And he's thinking of this. And he's dealing with this. And he says in Matthew 26, verse 39, My Father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In his humanity, who would want to be forsaken by the one he's always been in a perfect relationship with, perfect unity? And yet, out of obedience, his greatest desire was to obey his father, to become the sin bearer, to take the penalty for our sins so that we as sinners may go free. Does that willingly. I don't know about you, that amazes me. It'd been so easy to run. But he resigns himself to his father's will. Your will be done. 
this cup of your wrath cannot pass, Lord. If there's any other way and it cannot happen unless I go through this, then that's what I want. Your will done, Father. Brings me to our third point. The third characteristic of a faithful servant is this. A faithful servant finds their joy in the completion of their master's will. A faithful servant finds their joy in the completion of their master's will. This is very similar to the last point, but I want you to to think about it. We can desire something but not have joy. There's, be quite honest, many times I've been at work. I've desired to be at work. I desired the things that go along with work, like a paycheck. But living in sin, I did not have joy in that serving the Lord as I should have. We see this in verses 15 through 28 in Genesis 24, that a faithful servant finds their joy in the completion of their master's will. Here the servant is. He just gets done praying. Women are coming out to go get water. The first woman he sees. Hey, can I get a drink? Sure. Let me get some water for your camels also. And I'd love to see that guy's face. Usually when I pray, i got to wait a while. God's teaching me patience through it. It's just like God, boom, answers immediately. Staring at her, back and forth, buckets of water. He's overcome with joy. And he starts praising God. Look in verses 26 and 27. This is really where I'm drawing this point out of. He finds out that she is the right woman. And he says, and this is what happened. Verse 26. The man bowed his head and he worshiped the Lord. And this is what he said. He said, blessed be the Lord the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. He's just overwhelmed. And he's joyful. Oh, Lord, thank you. You've done it all. I asked you this ridiculous thing so much that this would happen, and it happened. You led me to the right person. You have shown so much love towards my master, Abraham. Thank you. Our joy needs to be centered on We have a heavenly master whom we serve. And what gives us joy should be 
him. The chief end of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Don't we also see this in Jesus? Jesus found his joy in the completion of his Father's will. In Luke chapter 10, I'm going to read verse 21 here. Um, the context is this. Jesus sends out these 72 men into the surrounding villages in pairs of two to go out and to serve, to preach the gospel, to evangelize, to minister, to kind of prepare the way because Jesus was going to go and make the rounds. They come back, and they're overjoyed. Oh, Lord, even the demons obeyed us. We casted some out, and oh, it's amazing. Jesus basically says, shouldn't your joy be in that you have eternal life? But in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, it's speaking of Jesus. Listen to this. In that same hour, he, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. Here is Jesus praising the Father, getting joy from the Father, as it says in the text, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit over God's will being done, drawing some sinners to an understanding of grace. While the proud and arrogant people who thought they had their act together, in one sense, God was hidden. If we have our eyes focused on self, how can we look to Jesus? Here Jesus is saying, Overjoyed. I'm rejoicing. This is your will, Father. You're accomplishing this. Oh, thank you. Turn to Luke 15. I just kind of want to bring this out too. Jesus' ultimate joy is the Father's will. And I think the one passage that we can get this, or one of the greatest passages we can get this, is these three parables that we find in Luke chapter 15. We'd know them as the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. It's pretty simple. They all, three of them, it's like the, the, what I would say, it's like the trilogy of parables about joy. The joy of heaven, the joy of our Lord, when a sinner repents and is saved. Parable of the lost sheep, pretty simple. Man loses his sheep, leaves the other one behind, goes, gets the sheep, brings them back, and is overjoyed because this lost sheep is now found. Verse 7 says, Just so, I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 self-righteous people who need no repentance. 
parable of the lost coin. Woman loses a coin. Poor woman. She needs that coin. Starts tearing apart her house, looking for it. Finds the coin. Rejoices over it. Calls her neighbors. I found. Rejoice with me. I found this coin that I've lost. Verse 10, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then the best known of these parables, the parable of the prodigal son. It's really an aspect of how God deals with two different types of sinners. The self-righteous sinner, like the Pharisee. The legalistic sinner. It's the older brother. Or the sinner that has like no restraint and just runs after a sin. You know, the kind of people that become sometimes easy to look our head down upon. Like, oh, can't believe they did that. Yet this younger son He's blown everything and so despised his father. Looks up. Looks at his condition. Looks as he is amongst the pigs. And he remembers, oh, my father's so good. Even the people that were just his servants, oh, he gave so much to. And here I am dying away of hunger. I'm going to go back to him and say, I'm no longer fit to be your son. I've sinned against you. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he does that. He travels all the way back to his father, the father that he wished was dead earlier. Comes to him. While he's still a long way off, the father sees him. Father represents God. Runs to him. Takes the shame upon himself. This young man repents. But the father fully forgives him. Shows him grace. In fact, he says this to his servants. Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put the signet ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf out here. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son. He was dead and he is alive again. He is lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. Here's God the Father in this parable. Joyous over a sinner who comes to salvation. That's really God's will. God delights in saving sinners. How does God do that? He's a just God. Somebody had to die for sin. The wages of sin is death. He could not be just and just let sin go. God had to be both the just and the justifier. Someone had to pay the penalty. So it was the father's will to crush his son 
in that, Jesus rejoiced. Hebrews 12, 2. Speaking of Jesus, it says this. It says of Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy. That was a hard will to fulfill. But Jesus found his joy not in the circumstances of life, not in his position, but in obeying his Father. Where do we find our joy at? Hobbies? Relaxing? That we have a lot of friends? Materialism? like me, I mean, I've done that. Isn't that joy so fleeting? Doesn't it go away so fast? Doesn't it lose its luster? There's a joy and a peace in serving the Lord that goes beyond our greatest understanding. He's our hope. He's our joy. We need to be like Jesus. This brings me to our fourth point. Of good, faithful servants, ultimate priority is their master's will, not their own needs, not their own comfort. A faithful servant's first priority the number one thing for them is their master's commands, their master's will, not their own needs or comfort. So this has all happened. The servant has found Rebecca. She's excited going home, telling mom and dad, Inviting him, come. Yeah, we have plenty of, you know, stuff for your camels and we have room and board for you. Come, come, come. They invite him in the house. He's had a long journey. He's there inside of the house. Look at verse 33. It says, Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And they said, Speak on. Here he is, kicked up the shoes, relaxed, have a meal. I'll get to my master's work later. Let me enjoy this home-cooked meal first. It smells great. But 
what was his comfort of eating a good meal, stopping, relaxing, enjoying the company, his first priority. In fact, it's kind of weird. I can't eat this until I have to say what I have to say. I wonder what the family thought. Uh, okay. Maybe there was, they were really hungry. and said, okay, just say it so I can eat. This man must speak his mission before he gets a chance to relax and eat or kick back. That's his priority, to faithfully serve his master, not to serve himself. And in fact, any faithful servant places their master's commands as their top priority. Turn to Luke chapter 9. I kind of want to read through this and explain it. Jesus taught this. We have some situations that are coming up. And it, on the onset, just right off the bat, it looks like very promising. Three different guys coming up to Jesus saying, I want to follow you. When I read this story, it kind of leaves you hanging. I kind of lean more towards the side because of what Jesus said. None of these guys followed Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. It says... As they were going down the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. Here's this guy who wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus, in one sense, is just saying, Are you sure? You're going to have to leave behind all the comforts of this life. I have nowhere to even rest my head. I have no home. You sure you want to follow me? You sure you want to obey me and follow me? You're going to leave behind some comforts. Or this next man. To another he said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now you read this, and in the Greek text, it's very clear. This guy's father is not dead yet. Lord, let me wait a while, then I'll be totally committed. Let me get my inheritance and be set for life, and then I'll totally follow you. What has a bigger draw on us? The comfort of riches? The security of riches? Even though there is no security in riches. Or Jesus. The last man said to him, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is ultimately saying, look, your first priority is me. You can't have a divided loyalty over the things of this world. Is Jesus saying, totally disown this family? No, not at all. 
But how can we have our eyes fixed on Jesus when we're also looking back? We can't be divided. A faithful servant will place their master's commands, their will, as the ultimate and only priority of their lives. And I'll get sidetracked with these things that are good, but not the best. Jesus' own priority was his Father's will. Again, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we read of the temptation of Jesus. And literally, it says that he was led out there by the Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness by the devil, fasting for 40 days and nights. Here he is, really hungry. At the end of these 40 days, we have this first temptation where the devil comes up to him and says, look, if you're the Son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? starving. A lot more so than some of us are at about 12 o'clock when service gets over. And yet here Jesus understands it's the Father's will that I go without food right now and to concentrate on my mission ahead. And so he stands up to the devil, says no. Rebukes him out of scripture. Man shall live, not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus put his Father's will as the greatest priority, not his hunger, not his comforts and needs. Much more could be said about that. But just real quickly, doesn't Jesus' own words from the cross display that? He placed his Father's will above his own comfort. Listen to him. Listen to two of his words from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt that. He went through that to obey his Father. Or in John chapter 19, to fulfill all Scripture. And it was a truth since says, I thirst. Put a sponge up to his mouth. He drank and he gave up his spirit. Have we got out of the comfort zone? <laughs> and put ourselves out there, exposed ourselves? for the Lord's sake and serving our Lord Jesus. This brings us to the fifth characteristic of being a good servant. I love this one. A faithful servant's ultimate identity is founded upon the master whom they serve. A good servant's identity is founded upon whom they serve. Here he is. He's told to speak. And basically, he's going to lay out the whole story of how they got to that point in in that household. I'm not going to go through that all. But verse 34, I do want to go through from Genesis chapter 24. Notice how this guy leads off. I am 
Abraham's servant. I think that speaks a whole lot. I would even say some of the, some of the ones who put together the Bible thought that spoke a whole lot. That's its own verse. I am Abraham's servant. He could have said, well, you know what? I am Eliezer, and I'm from Damascus. Oh, yeah, I also kind of serve this guy. You might know him, Abraham, except that your family. Who did this guy see himself as? A servant of Abraham, a servant of his master. We all have these different ways that we see ourselves and express ourselves. Well, I'm Colby Parker, son of Dan and Frida. I'm a brother and an uncle. I teach. You really stop and say, you know who I am? I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I serve a good master, the Lord Jesus. That's who I am. Do we get our identity Christ. Isn't that the meaning of the word Christian? Who are you? I'm a Christian. I serve Jesus. He's the risen Savior. He's the lover of my soul. He's my Redeemer. Don't we see this also in Jesus, that he gained his identity? His identity was folded into the Father. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole aspect of the Trinity because I'm confused on that as well. I know some things which are clear about it. Some things are a great mystery. But think about Jesus' name, Jesus. God is salvation. That's what it means. Or what about his name, Son of God? I'm God's Son. Want to know who I am? Look to the Father, Philip. You've been with me for so long, and you still have to say, show me the Father. Don't you know that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Don't his own words show that his identity was wrapped up in who the Father is? In fact, he says this in John 14, verse 24. The words that you hear are not even my own, but the Father's who sent me. Well, what about his actions? Even his actions, his identity of his actions was all wrapped up into the Father. In proving who he was in John chapter 5, verse 36, he says, the very works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father sent me. His name, his words... His actions are all based upon the one whom Jesus serves, God the Father. We have to stop and consider what kind of a name have we made of ourselves in the community and with our neighbors. They look at when somebody hears about your name, it's the first thing that goes through their mind. Oh, they really love Jesus. Are our words in line 
the scripture, proclaiming the one whom we serve. Are our actions ones of love and gratitude towards God, proclaiming his glory? This brings us to our sixth characteristic, the good, faithful servant. A faithful servant redeems the time to efficiently serve their master. A faithful servant redeems the time, buys up the time, makes the most of the opportunities of time they have so they can efficiently serve their master. So he goes through this whole long process. Ultimately, and all this happened, and I'm here for your daughter, Rebecca, to take her home to be my master's son's wife. What do you say? Family says yes. Absolutely. Again, another reason to be rejoiceful, and this guy obviously was. But here we have another awkward situation. Because the family stops and says, well, okay, yes, absolutely. She can go with you. But you know what? This is our daughter. Can we have her for like 10 days? Spend some time with her? Before she goes off to a far, far land and probably we never see her again? Pretty legitimate request. I don't know if I could be this servant. And our society would look at him and scratch her head and go, what in the world are you thinking about? The servant literally says this, do not delay me. Send me away now with her that I may go to my master. Don't even delay me one day. This isn't over yet. She's not Isaac's wife yet. I haven't completed this for Abraham. So please don't delay me. Let her come. As Christians, we're the serve our Heavenly Father in the same way. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but wise making the best use of the time because these days are evil. Colossians 4, 5 says this, conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Or in the first psalm that was ever written, Psalm 90, verse 12, Moses pens this, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Lord, let me understand. I only have so many days, and in those days, so many opportunities. I want to make the best use of them. I want to see every day, every opportunity is a precious way to serve you, and so I can do that and be a wise person in how I live my life in serving you. Jesus did this. go through many examples, just but one really quickly. 
the 12-year-old Jesus, is separated from Mary and Joseph at the Passover. A large group of people are now going back up the Nazareth. Jesus' family is going back, and he's not there. He's at the temple. He's separated. But he makes the best use of his time. He's there at the temple asking questions, reasoning, giving answers. It says that the people were amazed at this 12-year-old. Mary comes up to him and says, Look, what are you doing here? Jesus says in a loving, kind way, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Here I am, making the most of this opportunity because I'm serving the Father. I'm separated from you. What am I going to do? Sit here and cry? Making the most of it. That leads us to our last characteristic of what it means to be a faithful servant. Faithful servant finishes the job well for their master. Verses 57 through 67. All of this is good up to this point, but if this, point, but if this doesn't happen, the whole journey is a mess. It's a failure. This servant brings Rebecca and gives her to Isaac. They get married. It's the sort of happily ever after, if you will. Finishing well for Christ is what we're called to do. I think of the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 2.7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Here he is at the end of his life, and Paul could say that. I have finished well for Jesus. He knew it was over. He says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I'm about done. But I've finished well for my Savior. Don't we see this out of Jesus himself? In his high priestly prayer in John 17, where he prays for himself, for his followers, and also for future believers. In verse, seven, uh, verse 4, praying to the Father for himself, he says this to the Father. Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Father, Everything you gave me to do, I've done. I've finished well. Again, and even think of, John, uh, think of the words of Jesus recorded in the book of John about Jesus from the cross. It is finished. It is finished. The sin debt is paid. 
his head and he gave up his spirit. Really, as we think about this, I do want to leave you with a few applications. Three of them. First one is this. We need to be real. I look in my life that in light of these seven things, and I fail, I think, every day in all seven of these. Every day. It's a humbling thing. I'm not the man God calls me to be. But since we're all of the race of Adam, I think what I struggle with, we all struggle with. And in that, then we need to come and look and examine ourselves. Do we see some evidence of grace? Well, yeah, not yeah. Even though it's so imperfect, I do serve Christ like that at times. I do want to be known totally as Jesus' servant. I do want to obey him out of love. I do want to put him as the first priority in all that I do. It may be imperfect our obedience, but do we see an obedience in those things, those characteristics in our life? I think that's a source of rejoicing. It says of Jesus, when he examines a person's faith, sometimes it's compared to a, a smoldering wick. He says of Jesus, he will not put out that smoldering wick. There is a little bit of fire, a faith in that person. He does not extinguish it. A bruised reed he does not break. However, it could possibly be that most of this is foreign to you. I might as well be speaking in, I don't know, Latin or Greek or whatever. And serving in this way might be shocking. I say, I don't know if I've ever done that. Really, not even a little. Could it possibly be that you might know a little bit about Jesus but haven't looked to Jesus? Trusted in him? Rested upon him? What he commands is pretty simple. He encourages us to take his yoke upon ourselves. It's easy, that burden is light, to look to Christ a lot of times our problem is we're looking at ourselves to try to do something. And Jesus says, don't look to yourself. Look to the cross where sin is dealt with, where pardon is offered. And yeah, you know what? It is a scary thing to do that. It is a total dismissal of self. And it is a very scary thing because the road and the gate is narrow that leads to life. But the good news is, is that the gate is open. Christ, look to Christ. 
be real with where we stand before Jesus. Second point of application, I think, is this. Be resolved. Be resolved. Now, here's the tough thing. I don't want this to be a, like a to-do list. Well, I need to obey my master Jesus better this week. I need to do this and this and this. And I'm going to make up a huge list and I'm going to keep all of that. That's legalism. That's living by the flesh. That's confidence in self. It's the very antithesis of what it really means to be serving the Lord. We cannot do this in our own strength. Growth in grace is a growth downwards because it produces humility. And instead, I think when I say be resolved, it's this sense, Lord, I so greatly desire to be the servant, but I am being real and I cannot be that man. I am so far from it. To be resolved just means this. We are humbly on our knees praying to God. Lord, uh, I can't do it. I desire it. I need you. Help me. Help me. Reminds me of Jonathan Edwards and his 70 resolutions. As a young man, he made up these resolutions to chart his life, but he didn't get into that aspect of legalism. And in fact, his preamble to this as a very young man says this, and I think this should be our sense in the same way, is, is if we're going to be resolved to be the servant. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said this, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far that they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. We do need to be resolved and desire these things, but at that point, at the same time, we need desperately to seek the Lord. Lord, I desire it, but I need you. Our third application is we need to be rejoicing. Lord, I failed miserably, but I know someone who hasn't failed, my Lord Jesus. This servant whom you called me the bee, who perfectly keeps the law, Jesus has done that. And he's given me his righteousness the moment I believe. He took my sin upon himself and he gave me his righteousness. And so the law that I could not keep, the law of being this faithful servant of God, I look to Jesus. He His perfect life of service, his death of service, is mine by grace through faith in Jesus.